thanks for tuning into Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. The University of Virginia has been trying to figure out how to reckon with its history of enslavement for a long time now. Enslaved people have been part of the story of the University of Virginia and the story of Charlottesville since both of them began. And this week on Saturday, UVA will dedicate a major physical marker and memorial to the enslaved people who built the university and who were an integral part of its founding and early years. So we sat down with Kurt Von Dack. He's a UVA professor and he served as co-chair of the President's Commission on Slavery and the University. We asked him about the design and history of the memorial and to tell us a little bit more about the people that the memorial honors. And at the very first meeting, 150 people in attendance, the very first person who spoke told us, you better darn well build a memorial. It better be big, it better be visible, and we better be able to get to it. And stay tuned. In the second segment, we'll share an interview with Delegate Sally Hudson about some of the new laws passed in the Virginia General Assembly this year. I'm going to hand things over to our assistant producer, Mila Cesaretti, and Professor Kurt Von Dack. I'm Kurt Von Dack. I teach in History and American Studies. I am a dean in the College of Arts and Sciences. And in 2013, I was asked to co-chair and be the lead scholar on the President's Commission on Slavery and the University, which was the first institutional effort to fully understand and research the history of slavery at the university. And we were charged with considering appropriate memorialization. So we weren't actually charged with building a memorial, but we as a group made it uh, a, a real feature that we were not going to finish our work until there was actually a memorial approved and uh, hopefully finished, if not under construction. And so we began in 2014 a several-year community engagement project. And at the very first meeting, 150 people in attendance, the very first person who spoke told us, you better darn well build a memorial. It better be big, it better be visible, and we better be able to get to it. So we knew that that was really important. And so we worked uh, with the university, with the Board of Visitors, to get to a point where they would commit to a memorial. And they did in 2017. And then we participated in the hiring of a design team to come in and design the memorial. And uh, that that wrapped up really at the end of 2019, early 2020. And but for the pandemic, we would have already dedicated it. So that's sort of how my connection to this project began now about eight years ago. Could you just give an introduction about the design of the memorial and who designed it, the significance of its design? The, the university hired a design firm, Howler and Yoon, out of Cambridge, Massachusetts, to do the design. And one of the reasons we ultimately chose them was their commitment to a community-focused, community-centered approach. So going out to community centers, churches, going on the road to visit with alumni, even ran a survey for students, faculty, and staff to get feedback. And that led us to this location, right, which is known as the Triangle of Grass. It's north and east of the rotunda. And and we landed on that location because it's visible from the community, right? It's not on the lawn that's hidden and inaccessible to the rest of the world. 
It's right on a major bus line. Again, it's literally visible if you drive by on West Main. And the land on which it sits were farm fields that were laid out for use by professors and the university. And so we know these are places where enslaved people actually right, tilled the very land. So we thought this was a really important location for that direct connection and the fact that it was still part of the UNESCO World Heritage Site and again, really visible. And the design that you see behind me emerged over about a two year period with the design team and the commission repeatedly going back to the community and holding events where they would say, here's, here's what we're thinking. And we gather a lot of community feedback. And so that changed quite a bit uh, what it did starting when the design team um, came on board. The lower inner circle that you can see that bounds the grass contains a timeline of the history of slavery at the university. So it's an unflinching kind of textbook talking about the history. The outer wall that rises on the inside to a height of eight feet is a memory wall. There are 4,000 memory marks, but these are gashes in the granite. They're meant to acknowledge, we, we estimate that it was at least 4,000 people who sometimes for as little as two days spent time at the university or immediately adjacent to university working for someone working for the university. Those marks represent them, but we only have uh, about 600 names listed because that's all we can recover from the documents created by the university. So what we did with the memory marks is we, in, in addition to the 600 some names, added family relationships to acknowledge family and community. So grandmother, daughter, father, and then skill, right? We listed occupations. So you'll see everything from you know, ditch digger and clothes washer to carpenter, blacksmith. Uh, and I think what's really powerful about it is the design team really responded to all of the varied feedback from all these constituencies about what it should do. So as an example, students asked very clearly for a something that would function as an outdoor kind of classroom and protest space, which is what led to the inner grass field so that you can gather there. And we know that since last summer, right, it's become a site of kind of, kind of quiet protest. Uh, after the murder of George Floyd, multiple kneel-ins happened uh, in and around the memorial. I, I like it that it, it, it lives the way the, the current existing community interacts with it and sees it. On the northeast side, it has Isabella Gibbons's eyes peering outward, right? And I, I love how it's hard to find her eyes, right? It speaks to the way this history of slavery at the university is hidden in plain sight in the academical village. And so I love it that her eyes are there. And that came about because in early designs, we were focused on saying the names of the enslaved. I think both the design team was and the commission was. And at that first community meeting, one of the criticisms of the early design was, you're doing something that's meant to recover humanity, but there's nothing here that figures a human being. And the other question we got was, enslaved people were skilled, right? They didn't just hew wood and move earth. They were incredibly skilled, and you should honor that. 
So the memorial does two things. We used Isabella Gibbons' eyes so that she's peering outward and there's at least a partial figuring. We couldn't do anything more because we don't have pre-1865 images of people enslaved at the university. So even Isabella Gibbons' eyes are from a photograph from the 1870s or 1880s. But the community was satisfied with, you've now included a human representation uh, in a figural form in some way. So it's attempting to do a lot of work and speak to, I think, the very reasonable expectations of a, a very varied community of constituents, right? The local community, including descendants, students, faculty, alumni. That's, that's a lot. There's so many layers to it. The more you peel back, I didn't even know that those eyes were on it. I'm going to go back and look for that. Yeah, and a recommendation is if you're there in the middle of the day, they're much harder to find. If we've had rain recently and it's drying out, they're super visible. You'll be backing up and moving left and right, and all of a sudden you'll go, oh, there they are. I clearly see these eyes. So I think, I think it's really neat. I love how they are just slightly mysterious. And what's important here is Isabella Gibbons is a choice, right? We know a lot about Isabella Gibbons because of the community. So a, a community historian had already written about her almost a decade before the commission even began. And she became the first teacher of color in the Freedmen's School immediately after the Civil War. So she, right, while enslaved at UVA, married William Gibbons, so they lived in separate pavilions, but they struggled to build and maintain a family, and they, they surreptitiously learned to read and write, right? So they listened in on what was going on in the classroom. They pulled books off of the shelves. They asked questions in just the right way to get people to answer them. And they taught their children to read and write. And so Isabella committed herself after the war to educating 14,000 freed people in the county. And in 1867, this is only two years after emancipation, she's working in the school. She writes to the Freedmen's Journal, and she writes in a letter that's published in the Freedmen's Journal, and she ends with this comment about, will we ever forget the horrible cruelties of slavery? And she lists them. And the timeline ends with her quote, will we ever forget the horrible cruelties of slavery? No, we have not, nor ever will. So I think it's really important that her eyes, right, look out on the university. Um, she's there to remind us we won't ever forget again. Wow, that's so meaningful. Could you tell us a little bit about what the President's Commission on Slavery and the University is and what the research, a little bit about what the research was like for uh, finding all of these people that you're talking about? Sure. So it was a, a service commission created in 2013 by President Teresa Sullivan. And she did this in, in response to a, about a seven-year process uh, that started with the state of Virginia issuing a statement of profound regret for slavery, right? This was the 400-year anniversary of the founding of Virginia in um, 2007. So they issued the statement of profound regret for slavery, that we would at least acknowledge slavery and how it's a, you know, a crime against humanity. And then uh, the Board of Visitors followed suit and then inserted the first marker anywhere at the university acknowledging slavery at it. And this is in the cryptoporticus of the rotunda. This is the underground outdoor walkway that runs along the south side of the rotunda from east to west. 
and one of the thresholds to an archway in there has about a one foot by four foot slate plaque set in the ground and it thanked the several hundred free and enslaved laborers who helped build the university from 1817 to 1826, thus realizing Thomas Jefferson's design for the university. So, you know, it's the first moment of acknowledgement, and the first moment's often like that when you're acknowledging something really difficult, right? You, you sort of hope, if we do this quietly, maybe no one will notice, we're embarrassed, we're ashamed, and it fails in a couple other ways. It commingles uncomfortably enslaved and free people during the building of the university. And yes, free people who were paid for their work were involved in building the university, but it's very clear from the university records and even from the builders, uh, one of them in the 1820s writes to someone and says, our labor force is almost entirely African, right? So we know it's it, the vast majority of people charged with building the university are in fact enslaved people. So it makes a, it makes a little mistake there. It only acknowledges enslaved people during construction. And then it pivots to Thomas Jefferson, right? And if, if, if you're truly going to acknowledge the reality of nearly 50 years of slavery at UVA and acknowledge their humanity, it's probably not a moment to also talk about Thomas Jefferson, right, who enslaved 607 people over the course of his life and um, has some very problematic views on race. But we have acknowledged it. We've done something that's now going to set in motion a process. Students walk over that plaque, they read it, and they immediately go, wait a minute, no, this is not accurate. And why do they know that? Because right, students had done research prior to this. As early as 1993, students had been in kind of faculty-led projects, done research papers and theses, uh, looking at aspects of slavery at the university. So the university guides had looked at this material, knew that it existed, and had begun starting to tell different stories. So these students walked over. They said, this is just insufficient, right? That it was way more than several hundred it's not fair to co-mingle them, and we really should just talk about them. And so they launched a student group, Memorial for Enslaved Laborers. Their decision was, we're unhappy with that plaque, and we realize most people at the university simply have no idea. They sit in a beautiful garden and read a book. They don't understand that this is a landscape that is informed by plantation design. Uh, and that everywhere you go, you're looking at land that was tilled or bricks that were shaped or buildings that were built or occupied by enslaved people. This was a university that by the 1830s had become a place that was pretty committed to a pro-slavery view of the world. Uh, and that had a profound impact on pedagogy in the classrooms and the daily interactions with enslaved people. So they created this group and they did awareness raising projects to make this just a conversation around grounds. Let's talk about it. Let's make sure everyone knows the history. And this culminated in a 2010 design competition for an imagined memorial. They knew this memorial wouldn't be built, but it was using it as an idea. Let's, let's think creatively. If this plaque is insufficient, what might sufficient acknowledgement of the reality of their experience look like? And in 2011, they chose three winners. But that was kind of a driving force, and that's uh, unleashed change at the university. So there's all this kind of ferment going on among students about it. And in 2012, alumni get involved. They create the Idea Fund. 
the uh, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Access, and uh, they begin funding um, projects. So the Henry Martin plaque in front of the chapel, second marker acknowledging slavery at the university, was installed by this alumni fund. And that those two groups went to the chief diversity officer, uh, who's my co-chair on the first commission, Dr. Marcus Martin, and together they went to the president and made a proposal. The university needs to right, institutionally fully do the research, fully acknowledge this history, and then think about right how do we educate not only people today but people in the future. So we started in 2013. The commission hasn't met since 2018. And Dr. Martin and I and a couple others live on to sort of carry out its work and talk about the process. Yeah, so on April 10th, uh, you have the virtual dedication for the Memorial to Enslaved Laborers. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about what to expect, who's speaking? It's going to be a run-through of, uh, the. I think both President Sullivan and President Ryan will speak, John McFarlane, who led the fundraising project for the memorial, will speak. Both Dr. Martin and I will speak. And then two descendants who are, who lead an independent descendant uh, organization will also speak. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really excited for it, but I'm also just a little bit sad that we had this fabulous two-day in-person set of events um, including last year it was going to be one whole day that was going to be descendants only. Um, so an entire day of activities and projects uh, and time at the memorial for them and then the full dedication the next day. That is still happening this year. But again, I, I don't know that there's anything in person because of the pandemic. Um, and I think the really exciting piece about this to my mind, is the descendants blessing the memorial and turning on the water feature, right? It's been done for a year now, and the water feature hasn't run, and that's meant to be a libation, right? It's meant to be honoring the dead. They will bless the memorial, and then the water feature will run uh, during the warmer months in perpetuity. So I'm, I'm really excited to see that actually running and have people come visit and understand that. You can attend the virtual dedication ceremony on Saturday at 11 a.m. at virginia.edu slash live. You're listening to Charlottesville Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, protecting Virginia's air, water, and natural treasures, and leading the way towards a healthy environment for all. Learn more at southernenvironment.org. For our next segment, I want to share a great interview from our sibling podcast, Bold Dominion. If Charlottesville Soundboard is one of your sources for local news, they're a great place to go for information about our state government and politics. I'm going to hand things over to Bold Dominion's assistant producer, Arian Ballou, who talked with Sally Hudson. Hudson represents Virginia's 57th district, which covers much of the Charlottesville area in the Virginia House of Delegates. She's going to walk us through the meat and potatoes of what got done this session, the bills that passed, the bills that failed, and the bills that might come around again next time. Well, 
as usual, we get a lot done in a very short amount of time. Some of the most historic steps for Virginia, I think, have to do with criminal justice reform. Once again, we ended the death penalty in the former capital of the Confederacy in a state that has executed more people than almost any other. We passed major expungement reform in the Clean Slate Act that will, for the first time, give people with prior convictions an opportunity to close those records so that they no longer face barriers in housing and employment and credit, which is such a huge priority for so many people I've heard from. Um, We will be restoring voting rights automatically for people with felony convictions, which has been a major form of voter suppression in Virginia and across the country. So a lot of work that was brought up in the special session we did last year finally came to fruition. Um, And of course, we laid down the tracks to legalize cannabis possession here in Virginia. So just on the criminal justice front alone, huge steps. How about COVID relief and, and budgeting stuff? How did that all look this time around? So other major steps that um, were in the budget to directly address the COVID crisis were resources and support to streamline the vaccination process and make it possible for more people to participate as vaccinators. There's a lot of important money going into our schools, uh, both to raise salaries for educators and staff, um, and also to make it possible for us to, um, to serve more students over the summer. Um, there's a, a lot of important work in there for um, paid sick leave for for home health care workers. So, you know, I think that obviously as the COVID stri- crisis stretches on, all of that um, touches the state budget in so many ways. Uh, what were some of your priorities in the session and how did they fare overall? One of my top priorities for the session was to work on unemployment insurance reform because it was the number one reason that constituents called me last year. We had one in six Virginians get laid off and apply for unemployment at some time in the last year. And so a lot of people found themselves navigating a very broken system. And so we did some important things to try to make that system better in the short run. Um, One is that we made it easier for the VEC to contact people via phone and email so that they will no longer be exchanging letters, which they had to by law. Um, We made sure that going forward, no one will be cut off from their benefits once they start flowing without a hearing, because we heard from so many people who started getting payments and then they stopped without warning and they were just left in limbo for months and they'd finally get to the end of the line and have a hearing and wrap up some small misunderstanding with the state data in a day or so. And so that was really a due process violation for those people to have to wait without a hearing. And so we ensured that that won't happen anymore. Um, And I, I also carried a measure that will forgive overpaid unemployment benefits to a lot of workers who got them by mistake. Uh, In the very early days of COVID, when the rules around unemployment at the state and federal level were changing so fast, lots of people applied in good faith and then found out months after they got paid that for some reason they weren't eligible and they long since spent the money on rent and gas and groceries. And so you have people who, many of whom were not working super highly paid jobs to begin with, Um, find themselves facing a a debt collection letter for the state um, because the state made a mistake and they paid money that they thought was rightly theirs. Uh, And so we'll be waiving close to $20 million in debt for people who found themselves in that position because they they don't have the capacity to pay back. So that's some of the work that we did on unemployment. Um, Also important work on um, SNAP, which is the primary way that, that folks get assistance with their groceries. 
Um, we'll be expanding SNAP eligibility in Virginia um, and, and feeding a few 10,000 10, of more families by taking advantage of some, some federal language. So um, a lot of things to try and make it easier for folks to, to make ends meet. Did a lot of important work on evictions, which was a major challenge in the last year and continues to be. So lots of lots of things to try to make our community and our economy more resilient in, in the face of our current challenges. Obviously, this session was a little bit, not abbreviated, but there was a, a tighter focus. You had a limited number of bills that you could carry, I believe. Uh, what were your focuses in addition to the, the unemployment thing? So um, I carried a bill to remove the ban on abortion coverage on our state health insurance exchange, carried a bill to retire Virginia's coal tax credits, where we were pouring about $300 million into propping up a fossil fuel industry instead of investing in a sustainable economy and environmental transition for Southwest Virginia. I carried a bill to crack down on illegal evictions and to hasten those cases on court dockets so that people can, can stay in their homes. Um, I carried legislation to remove the, the felony penalty for um, drug possession in Virginia, because we know that locking people up for five years doesn't help with addiction. A uh, lot of a wide range of topics, but um, all of them important, I think. So as far as energy reform in, in general, was there anything there uh, of note that we passed or did not pass? Well, there was a big package of bills that passed that are a huge step for Virginia to encourage the transition to electric vehicles. So Virginia will be joining the states that now have what we call a clean car standard, which will mandate that a certain share of the vehicles sold by car dealers in Virginia qualify as low or no emissions vehicles. We also put a lot of planning into the infrastructure required to support those cars. So having chargers distributed around Virginia so that people can't get caught without being able to charge up no matter where they are. Um, so that was all very important. Uh, the, the big energy package that didn't pass this year was some work that I carried along with several of my colleagues in the House across party lines to help bring down the cost of energy bills across the board um, in Virginia. We have some of the highest energy bills in the country. Um, Virginia's play, I think, top six among all of the states. And that is largely because we have documented overcharges from our monopoly utilities like Dominion Power. Um, and over time, the utility has really been writing the laws that handcuff our state regulators from lowering prices. And so there are provisions embedded in state law that basically say the state corporation commission can't lower the price. You have to keep paying us this much, even though energy has gotten cheaper. Um, so a group of us got together and tried to um, carry legislation that would unwind those traps. Uh, it turns out that the Senate was not willing to follow us there yet this year. The Senate is still very um, friendly to a lot of corporations, but in particular to utilities. Um, and so those bills were sort of dead on arrival the second they got to the Senate, despite wide bipartisan support in the House. I mean, it, it's kind of become a, a, a refrain now that a lot of things go to die in the Senate, uh, even though it is a Democrat-controlled legislature at this point. So another thing that was, uh, I believe, killed was the campaign finance bill uh, or reform bill. I know we talked about this a little bit the last time we spoke. I mean, what, what happened with that and what can we do going forward? Sure. So I, I think campaign finance reform is a good example of an issue where both the House and Senate still have room to grow. There's a lot of ways that Virginia is the wild, wild west of campaign finance. We have no ban on corporate contributions. We have no ban on the personal use of campaign funds. We have unlimited contributions from any donors. And so there's a lot of work to do for comprehensive campaign finance reform in the Commonwealth. 
the only real step we took this year was to agree to study it one more time. So Delegate Bolova for the Fairfax area carried a bill that will convene a study around campaign finance reform uh, in the coming year. Now, we have many studies just like that already sitting on the shelf that tell us what's wrong with Virginia's campaign finance system. Granted, there's always more to learn and more wrinkles to discuss, but there are some few, a few low-hanging fruit that we had hoped would pass this session, in particular, a ban on personal use of campaign funds, which is so very rare um, to Virginia. But the, the Senate was not willing to do that this year. Um, and so that one died there. I think that there's still a lot of things, I think, about good governance reform and the relationship between government and business that um, will require a pretty big culture change in the other chamber before we can make headway. I mean, do you get any sense that's happening or likely to happen in the next couple of years? Well, every senator is on the ballot in two years. So that's the next real opportunity to shake things up, as always. What are some of your priorities looking forward to uh, the rest of this year and to next year? Uh, a lot of things. There's always a lot to get done. Big projects ahead in the year on school finance reform. There's big pro- projects on the Dillon rule. There's other big projects on energy. I mean, we, we do a lot, a lot. I think in the, in the shortest term, the, the next goalpost that we're all kicking for are the reconvene session, which happens in April. And that is our opportunity to work with the governor to amend bills that passed that we think may not have landed on quite the compromise that everyone hoped at the end of the, the regular session. Um, in particular, the, the one that we are all, I mean, I think a lot of us um, are most excited about seeing further progress on very quickly is to accelerate the legalization of marijuana in Virginia. Right now, the bill that we were able to agree on last month would end the penalty for simple possession of cannabis in 2024. And uh, there's a lot of folks uh, in both chambers who believe that we can go ahead and do that right now in July of 2021, and then work over the coming years to continue the longer term work of appropriately regulating commercial cannabis sales, which is different from the, the personal possession. Um, so we would still still be illegal to um, distribute drugs. We would be working to set up regulations for commercial distribution. Um, but in the meantime, we can stop penalizing people for having small amounts of cannabis in their possession. That change that Delegate Hudson was describing, that they were asking the governor to push legalization up from 2024 to 2021, was approved on Wednesday. So as of July 1 this year, 2021, It will be legal for adults 21 and over to possess an ounce or less of marijuana. It will also be legal to grow up to four marijuana plants. However, it could be several years before the state allows commercial sales. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our assistant producer this week is Mila Cesaretti. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marina Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Charlottesville Soundboard. <laughs>